Are you struggling in your faith? Are you pretending you're happy but stuck in a spiritual rut? Are you tired of listening to famous pastors and preachers who make it sound so easy? Welcome to Broken Catholic, the number one Protestant and Catholic voice in America. I talk about the important things that nobody else is talking about, like how to align with God's plan for your life, because I believe this is where 90% of Christians get stuck. And I tackle the negative self-talk that we all secretly struggle with but won't admit. My guests are brave Protestants and Catholics who share their struggles, their fears, and their daily holy habits that help them win in their spiritual lives. I'm your host, your coach, your friend, Joseph Warren. I'm also a broken Catholic and former atheist and a spiritual coach to Christian business owners and CEOs who are married with children. This show was created for you, the broken Catholic, who's pushing to get your spouse, your kids, and yourself to heaven. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you're just one surrender prayer away. Today, my featured guest is Scott Cohn. He is the founder of Sex Successful Men. Let me say that again. Successful Men, a sexual addiction recovery practice that helps Christian men struggling with pornography, the wounds of childhood sexual abuse, and other unwanted sexual behaviors. Scott leads weekly small groups of men around the world through various recovery groups, including Unwanted the Journey, developed by therapist and author Jay Stringer. You can find Scott Cohn at SuccessfulMen.com. That's S-E-X-C-E-S-S-F-U-L-Men.com. So Scott, welcome to Broken Catholic, the number one podcast on iTunes for Protestants and Catholics. Go ahead and just take about 30 seconds, fill in some of the gaps in that intro, would you? Thanks, Joseph. Good to be here. Well, uh, yeah, so it probably goes without saying that I, I know what I'm talking about because I've struggled with unwanted sexual behavior as well. That's how I got into this in the first place. And uh, so I started in recovery. My own recovery journey started in about 2014. And I did that for a year, you know, just on my own, just getting my own foundation uh, set up and getting my own health back. And then afterwards, I turned around as, as part of the recovery community kind of ethic. You turn around and help other guys that are just entering in and found out I was really good at it. I liked it. And so I had a, a gifting from God, I believe, and a calling. And so in 2020, I launched Successful Men and uh, man, God just blessed it right away. So people started finding me and um, um, you know, it was, I, I think the business, the, the practice was launched at a time when right before COVID hit a year before COVID. And that certainly has really increased isolation. And mm. one of the things I tell guys is the opposite of, um, addiction is, is not sobriety. It's community. We, we tend to get addicted yeah. because we're isolated and we're keeping a lot of secrets. And so, you know, we got out ahead of COVID. And then by the time COVID came around, there was a lot of guys struggling with pornography and other sexual behaviors that they hadn't ever experienced before. And it's just kind of exploded because God created us to live in community. We're social creatures and it's not good for the man to be alone. So well yeah, that kind of perfect storm hit. So that's, that's 
kind of the story of how I got involved in this. And yeah, I got it. And I agree with you completely, Scott, like isolation is the fuel um, for sexual addiction. It really is. It just, it throws gasoline on that fire of desire. That's natural and good in us, but then it burns and, and it hurts people, right? It gets out of control. So before we get into your story specifically, uh, take a minute, share something personal about you that very few people in your business life actually know. Well, let's see. I have a lot of kids. So even though I'm a Protestant, I breed like a Catholic. So <laughs> I how many have, kids do you have? I have uh, I have five children, but I had six. I had a daughter that passed away at the beginning of um, May hmm. after uh, uh, several years, well, multiple years struggle with uh, substance abuse problems. Hmm. And so I raised two of my granddaughters um, and I have uh, six granddaughters and another one on the way. So yeah, we're, we're doing our part to, uh, populate the earth and multiply right? and multiply on the Protestant <laughs> side of the equation here. Listen, Catholics should not be the only ones that take that verse literally. I, I Let's be totally, real. Yeah, I agree with you there. <laughs> Obviously. Listen, the Muslims take that verse literally. Okay. Yeah, so they're doing right. much better at breeding than we are so far. <laughs> For sure. All right. So, Scott, um, let's go back in time, if you will, and kind of early childhood and just kind of paint us a quick picture of what home life looked like when you were a boy. Uh, were you raised with faith? Um, was mom and dad present, loving? Like, was there wounds and hurts and stuff like my life? Like, what did it look like? Paint us a quick picture into your adolescent years. Yeah. So my mom um, uh, grew up in a home with a alcoholic father and uh she went away to college as a you know young woman 19 years old met my dad they got married i came along very quickly and i think my early years were filled with maybe a lot of my mom struggling with being a very young mother raising me maybe some resentment that that i came along and kind of maybe ruined her college plans for a time and um, and so I felt very unloved and unwanted, which is very typical for those of us that struggle, you know, with any kind of addictive problems. The foundational issue is attachment. Mm. And so um, attachment is that ability that we develop over and over again when our parents are attuned to us as little babies and children. They know when we're feeling upset, when we're struggling with our big emotions like fear or anger or anxiety and they come and they either soothe us or they stimulate us and they're training our brain and our nervous system how to respond to our environment and to to calm ourselves and to soothe ourselves well when you don't get that early in life what happens is you don't develop a healthy way of a of bonding with other people so you develop what's called insecure attachment and um as you grow older then and you discover you know, sexuality, maybe you start masturbating when you're 11 or 12, you start to use orgasm as a way to regulate your moods and, and to control kind of your, your big emotions. And that's where sex becomes addictive because you're, God didn't design uh, sex and orgasm to be used to modulate our emotions. He designed it to be something that connects us to our spouses and that brings you know, joy and delight and pleasure in our marriages. And so when we take something that God created for one thing and we take it over here and use it for another thing, it's always going to create a problem. Mm. 
Mm. So Scott, let me just pause you right there. I mean, what you just brought to light, and I think you said it very articulately, is, you know, what is good as a boy, um, what is needed as a boy to be loved and, and just feel cherished by mom and dad and, and as life and outside stimuli, you know, uh, just weigh in on that boy's emotions. Um, if he's not feeling attached to mom and dad, uh, you know, immediately he's going to go within, right? He's going to go within, he's going to isolate, he's going to go into the cave and, and he goes from attachment to detachment. You used another phrase for it, but, uh, this, this, uh, it's like a fake attachment, right? And I know, cause I lived that okay myself. Right. And then it, into all my dating relationships, like I was attached on the outside to the girls I was dating, but on the inside, I had closed off my heart to them. Right. So I was completely detached. So speak to that in your own life, like in your early childhood, did that impact your, your dating relationships once you got into adolescent years and how, how much so? Did well, it? it impacted me as a five-year-old because at a time where, you know, I was feeling very alone in my own home. And I love this uh, phrase by Kurt Thompson, who wrote the book called The Soul of Shame. He says, we all come into the world looking for somebody looking for us. And when you don't find that person looking for you and your family, which is your mom or your dad, those are our primary caregivers in those first, those really formative first five years, the first five to 10 years of our lives. That's where our brains develop. That's where our nervous system develops. That's where we learn to have relationships and solid bonds with other people. And if you don't get that, you're gonna go looking for it elsewhere. And for a lot of us, then what we do is we attach to things instead of people. So when you discover sex, sex becomes a thing to you. So it becomes very objectified. And with pornography now coming on, you know, the average age of porn exposure is eight years now. And it's, you know, internet porn is not like the porn that I grew up with, which was Playboy or Penthouse magazine. It's the raunchiest, most graphic stuff in video form. And it's highly, highly addictive. And it's infinite variety and novelty. And so it really hooks into the male brain in particular. But what it does is it creates an objectified way of relating to other people. So you tend to view other people as objects. And it's a training ground for treating other people as objects. And that keeps you isolated and it keeps you hampered from actually forming solid, intimate relationships with other people. So for me, it happened really early in the fact that because I was sexually abused by an older neighbor boy um, when I was five years of age. So into this vacuum of affection that I had in my life comes a sexual experience, which becomes really welded then to that lack of affection. And that seems like, oh, well, that's how I receive affection from other people. So mm -hmm. sexuality get it, gets introduced in a lot of our you know, about this, the statistics for men are about 25% of men are sexually abused before their 18th birthday. And it's something that nobody talks about. And it's a very formative factor in not just sexual addiction, but then how you relate to your wife, how you're going to relate to other people in more intimate relationships in your life. So that's very damaging. And that on top of the family dynamic where you didn't feel really uh, cared for and loved in your own home, those factors combine and it becomes a really toxic combination for a really messed up, 
sexuality later on. Mm. I think you spoke to that very well. Uh, so many times are the way we look at sex in a dysfunctional way, typically uh, originated in our childhood when sex was introduced to us in a dysfunctional way. Yeah. And it changes exactly. our lens for life, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And then you're going to you're gonna struggle with that because the other part of our sexuality is, particularly as a child, if you're, if you're put into a sexual sim- situation before you're ready, if you're sexually abused, there's a lot of shame around that, particularly for Christians, right? Because, um, and for men in particular, it's shameful because, first of all, men are not supposed to be victims of abuse. We're supposed to be strong. So for a male to be sexually abused is shameful in the regard that it puts you in the role of a victim. Number two, 95% of all sexual abuse is committed either by a friend of the family or a family member. So it's usually somebody that is known to the child. And that puts the child in a tremendous double bind because they either are forced to out somebody that they care for, or maybe fear that if they bring that person out and and accuse them that everybody else in the family will turn against them and believe the perpetrator, or they have to just hold on to that secret by themselves and have no help in dealing with a very traumatic situation. And that's just so much anxiety and stress and just wait for a a little undeveloped child, correct? Yeah. It's it's what trauma is, right? You deal with something that's really significantly harmful and you're dealing with it all by yourself. That's what Mm. trauma is. So you have bad things happen to you and you're alone in the bad things. Third thing that makes it really harmful, sexual abuse really harmful for men is by and large, the majority of sexual abusers of men are other men. So again, it's shameful, not just for a man to be sexually abused, but to be sexually abused by another man. So it's rare that it's a female. It happens more now than it used to, but it's mostly always an older male. Usually it's an older brother, older cousin, older uncle, somebody that somebody that is in puberty while the, the child is prepubescent. And the fourth thing that's really shameful is you experience arousal and pleasure. Mm. And so the minute you start to get aroused, the minute you start to experience sexual pleasure, you're confused as a child because you've never had this happen before. And yet it feels good. But that's how God made your body to respond. And your body doesn't know whether it's a male or a female touching it. It's just going to respond the way God created it. So working with guys that have been sexually abused in particular, there's a lot of shame that we have to work on and and teach guys that it's not your fault, even if it felt good, even if you started to look forward to it. Because when you're abused over and over by the same person and they're a close member of the family or a friend of the family, you have a lot of affection there. You may look forward to the attention you're getting from them because you're not getting it from your father. But it sets you up in this terrible double bind where you basically now feel complicit in the abuse. And so it takes a lot of kindness and care and just teaching guys to be um, compassionate to themselves from what they've suffered because it's a very it's a very damaging thing and you do struggle with it for a lot of your life. Not that... Yeah. Not that you can't learn to cope and, you know, have things uh, have growth in those areas and healing. But I think it, it probably a lot of the effects don't entirely disappear for the rest of your life. 
Yeah, I get that. Now, you mentioned earlier um, a statistic, and correct me if I say it incorrectly, that about 90-something percent of boys that are sexually molested as children are molested by men. Um, does that, what have you seen or what's the research out there? What's the stats, uh, where that creates or originates same sex attraction in that victim? So, um, there's not been a lot of studies done on this from the scientific community, because I think that, you know, just from, from a secular standpoint, the view has been, you know, promoted loud and long for the last 50 years that, uh, sexual orientation is something that people are born with and it's immutable and it doesn't change throughout your life. And so to say that there would be causative factors involved like molestation flies in the face of that kind of the, the secular mantra. Well, th the reality is the secular research that's being done now is showing not only is sexuality fluid through a lot of males lives. So you have a lot of research that's been done by uh, a woman named Lisa Diamond, uh, who herself is a lesbian. So she's not got a Christian ax to grind here against the GBLTQ community, but she's come out and shown that, you know, for example, 30% uh, of gay men masturbated to a sexual fantasy of a having sex with a female in the last 12 months. Also, she documented in Utah, very conservative state, among straight guys who identified as straight adults, that 25% of them have masturbated to a sexual fantasy of uh, a male friend. So there's a high degree of fluidity in what arouses us and turns us on, and it can change over time. That's why sexual addiction recovery works because we help guys retrain their brain so that the things that they've grown up being aroused by we can help them minimize that. So they're not continually going back to that same thing that was uh, creating self-harm in that. So what is, what is the statistics? I mean, interestingly, um, anecdotally, about 75% of men who report struggling with same-sex attraction also report having childhood sexual abuse. So the research is always, you know, Correlation doesn't make causation, but at the same time, there's such a huge percentage of men that struggle with same-sex attraction that have also been sexually abused before their 18th birthday that it's hard to ignore that that's a, that has some role to play. But I will say this, I think the factors that form our arousal template, the things that turn us on, whether we're attracted to males or females or both, those things are very complex. They don't emerge out of just one singular factor. So there's probably a whole cocktail of things that go into developing same-sex attraction in a, in a guy's life. And that might just be one big one. Mm, thank you. That made a lot of sense. So we spoke clearly about uh, you know the, the problem and how it originates at very young ages through abuse and uh, molestation, etc. Um, now, take us through how you help uh, your clients, how you help men to recover um, from this this brokenness in their sexuality, this brokenness in God's design of sexuality in them. Like, what actually works? Where are you getting the the biggest results with men? So, when you work with a client, what have you seen actually works, and it works repeatedly? Yeah, so um, I have a, 
kind of my recipe for how I approach, and there are like 486 modalities for treating addiction of all kinds out there. So, you know, you can kind of pick and choose aspects of different ones, but the ones that I have found to be the most powerful for me personally, so I've incorporated into my um, kind of my pillars around the modalities that I use is first of all, the gospel is the foundation for everything. So what is the gospel? The gospel is we're way worse than we know. Our sin is much bigger than our sexual sin. Our sin is we don't love God with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the biggest problem. And yet God sends his only son who loves us and goes to the cross to redeem us while we're still his enemies. So the gospel is you're way worse off than you know, but you're more loved than you know. And you start with that foundation that in Christ, God has completely loved us and accepts us. And there's so many stories in the gospels around sexual sinners. John, 50, or, uh, John 4, Jesus goes to the woman at the well. She's been married five times and the guy she's living with is not her husband. This is an immoral woman. She's a Samaritan. And yet Jesus only did what the father told him to do. So he's going to this woman who clearly has a lot of shame in her life because she's going to gather water in the middle of the day. And the rest of the women are gathering water at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, not in the heat of the day. And she's there by herself and Jesus comes and meets her because God had appointed uh, the son to go and have this conversation with her. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about her sex. He talks to her about her thirst. What are you thirsty for? And I can give you something that will never have you coming back to this well to drink. And of course, you have to understand the Old Testament allusions to sexuality. A woman, a woman's sexuality is considered a well in a lot of the poetic language in the Old Testament in particular, male sexuality is considered a fountain. So there's this subtext of sexuality mm. occurring there, but Jesus is, and, and thirst and water is always seen as sex and satisfying our thirst and all of that. But this story is really about how Jesus comes at, to the point of our greatest needs. And sex is one of those areas of our lives that reveals a great need, a great hunger, a great thirst. And Jesus is coming in there and saying, I can satisfy that in a way that how you're trying to find satisfaction isn't working. So mm. the gospel is the foundation. The second piece is a community of other men who understand what it's like to struggle and who understand that your formative environment, how you develop your sexuality and the stories around that, that were formed in your family of origin and maybe with sexual abuse and how you discovered pornography and how you discovered masturbation and all that. All of that has a bigger influence on your life than the fact that you're horny and you can't stop masturbating. And so one of the things that's different from um, maybe some traditional kind of more 12 step programs that are more behavioral oriented in our approaches, when guys first come to me, I'll say, I don't care if you're masturbating to porn right now. What I just want you to do is I want you to keep track in terms of when you do act out, what time of day is it? Where are you? What's your location? What were you feeling right before then? And I start to ask them to be curious about what's driving their behavior. And so we start to approach the situation, not with shame 
or condemnation, but with kindness and curiosity. And then we look at healing the wounds of the past. We look at doing a better job of identifying the things that are happening to us today that trigger us to want to go act out and replacing, working at actually creating a life that we don't feel like we have to escape from all the time with porn or masturbation. And then the third piece is having a passionate purpose in life. Because if you don't have a passionate purpose, you're going to pursue purposeless passion. So one of the first things I have guys do before we even start working on stopping masturbation or stopping porn use is I want to know why you're doing this. What's your why? And so I have them answer a simple question. I want to stop blank. And they put in the self-defeating behavior they want to stop because what I want more is blank. And I get them, ask them to be really clear about why they're doing this. And um, it's got to be their reason, not because their wife busted them, not because God's not pleased with it. It's got to be, I want to be a better man. I want to, I want to live the kind of life that God designed me to live as a man. And I want to have some integrity and I want to feel good about myself instead of feeling out of control all the time. So I have them start with their why, their vision for what they want to do in life, the kind of legacy they want to leave. And that becomes kind of the start with the end in mind approach. And then we start working on dealing with the shame, dealing with the origin stories of how this developed in your life, helping to see the connections between things that happened in your home and why you watch the kind of pornography you watch. Because there's always a connection between our sexual fantasies and what we're looking at and the harm that's occurred in our past. And a lot of times our sexual fantasies and our porn, we're trying to use those things to reverse the effects of the harm that's occurred in our past. And once you see the connections, it kind of demystifies and, and de-eroticizes a lot of what the guys are doing in terms of acting out. Yeah, I get that. So how much of what you do is therapy or counseling? How much of it is completely different than either of those? And then lastly, how much of the transformation that you get to participate in with your clients is calling in God's power to heal what they just can't even access on their own or you can't access on your own, uh, but God can, and he does that transformation. Yeah, well, um, it's all of those. Like, if God's not going to, if the Lord doesn't build the house, we're laboring in vain. So we need God to ultimately change our hearts. And I, I, one of the other things I, I'll ask guys to think about is um, the problem is not that you love sex. And this is what Augustine says. The problem is not that we love things. The problem is that we love them in the wrong order. That's right. So if our hearts find their rest in God, if, they, if our hearts find our true love in God himself, then all the other things of life we can love and we'll love them properly. What happens is when we, when we take that God-shaped vacuum that's in each of us, you know, Ecclesiastes says he has set eternity in the heart of man. Well, if there's, a, if there's an eternal void inside of us, the only thing that can fill an eternal void is an eternal thing. 
and the only eternal thing is God. So if you try to fill that eternal void with sex or wealth or prestige or fame or whatever, you're going to be continually unsatisfied. Not that any of those things are bad. They just were never designed to complete your heart. And so it starts with really the expulsive power of a new affection. You've got to love Jesus more than you love looking at naked people who you don't know having sex while you have sex with yourself. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to learn to love him more and grow to love him more. How do you, and, how do you take men through that? Because it's easy to say, it's like, go love Jesus more. Well, how do I actually do that? So how do you learn, how do you practically grow to love anybody more? Spend time you, with them. You spend time with them. You get to know them. You, um, you do things that lavish affection on them. How do you do that though, Scott, when you're feeling the guilt and the shame of your sin? And the judgment of God, how do you run to him and want to spend time with him, want to learn more about him, lavish him with affection when you don't even feel you can approach him? Well, so I can tell you how I did it is in the first year that I got in recovery, I had always believed that God loved me, but I didn't feel that he loved me. And this is a really common problem with guys that are struggling with sexual addiction. So you may intellectualize, you may believe the scriptures, but you don't sense the love of God. There's not a lot of warmth in your relationship. You have a very intellectual relationship. So what I did is I took a lot of the scriptures that talk about how much God loves us, and I would say them every day as affirmations, I would, and I personalize them. So I would say, well, God so loves Scott that he gave his only begotten son that, so that when I believe in him, I would not perish but have eternal life. Or First um, John that says, we... God, I love God because he first loved me. Um, uh, Isaiah, which says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands, which the word inscribed means chiseled with a hammer and nail. Literally, Isaiah is prophesying the crucifixion hundreds of years before Jesus. So I got all these scriptures on, on God's love, and I would just meditate on those, and I would say those out loud. And then I spent an entire year just reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over and over and over and over again. Because the Gospels tell us about Jesus. They tell us the story of Jesus. And you see in the Gospels, there's a lot of content about people that struggle sexually. And Jesus is not throwing any stones at them. He's not shaming them. He's not, you know, casting them out. In fact, one of the most famous stories in Luke 15 is, right? They call the prodigal son. What does the prodigal son do? He goes to his father and says, give me my share in the inheritance, which is basically like saying to your dad, I don't care that you're still alive. I actually want the money more than I want the relationship with you. So just give me the old money. Give me the money, old man, before you die so I can go have my fun. So the young guy goes away. And how does he spend the inheritance? He blows it all on hookers in a matter of months. And then he gets to the point of desperation where he's out feeding pigs and it looks like pig slop is looking pretty good to him. And it's his hunger that drives him back to his father, not a true sense of repentance. Right? So the son is still a selfish little jerk. 
But Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran to him and greeted him with hugs and kisses and said, quick, bring a robe, put the ring on his finger, clothe him, put the shoes on his feet, kill the fatted calf. At the moment of this young guy's height of shame and failure, the father runs to him, not with stones, not with scorn, not with shame, but hugs and kisses, a robe to cover his nakedness, and he throws a party. And what I see in that story is repentance is really about returning to the party that God wants to throw for you. Mm. What, what does the word repentance mean? It comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means change your thinking. The first way we need to change your thinking is about God. We need to see God as differently than we've seen him. We've seen God the Father as the stern judge. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whack you if you step out of line. You watch porn one more time. I'm sending a lightning bolt to you. That is not what God the Father is like. Jesus is telling this story to show us what God the Father is like. Compassion is what drives him. Compassion is what drove the Father to send the Son. And the Son and the Spirit and the Father all working together to bring us into that party that they want to throw for us. So Paul said in Romans 2, don't you know it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance? If you really want to change, you have to start by receiving the kindness of the Lord and changing how you view God first and foremost. I agree so much with that. And Scott, this goes back to what you said in the beginning of this episode. As children, we're looking for someone who's looking for us. And you just gave the answer. When the world around us, your family, BC Nation, your mom, your dad, your siblings, your spouse, you don't feel them looking for you. You're in brokenness. Maybe you didn't choose it, but that's what's so. When you have no one around you looking for you, know this. What Scott said is true. Think of the prodigal son story. Read it. God is looking for you. He's pursuing you. He's watching for you. He's waiting for you to come back to your senses, to realize that he is a God of compassion first and mercy and forgiveness first and foremost. Yes, he's a just God, so we don't want to sugar it all down. He's this and that, but he's compassion and love first. So you're, if you're looking for someone who's looking for you, know that God is always looking for you. He's always pursuing you. That's your answer. Scott, anything you want to add to that? No, that's, I mean, that is Luke 15 is all about lost things. Who's doing the pursuing? It's the father. It's the son, right? The, we're not looking for them. <laughs> nope. We're selfish little brats like the prodigal son. Paul said, Romans 3, nobody's seeking for God. No one. God's the one that does the seeking. And this is the amazing thing about Christianity. It is the only religion in the world that says, the God who loves you came searching for you. You don't have to go searching for him. Yeah. 
It's quite amazing. All right, Scott, we're going to wrap up today's show. Uh, man, powerful. I really appreciated uh, the different perspective you brought to this conversation. And, and this is a conversation that's a very common struggle uh, in humanity, not just in the Christian walk. But listen, I, I like to say it this way. If you're an atheist listening to the show, and I know some of you do because you want to just find out when I say something wrong. God bless you for that. Um, if you're agnostic or you're a skeptic, you you just don't choose a side because it's safe in the middle, lukewarm and all. Listen, bottom line is this. God loves you deeply. God's pursuing you actively. You're the one resisting. But the fact remains, what Scott said is true. You have a God-sized hole in your heart that can only be filled by an eternal being, which is God, not by temporal things. That's why it's not working. You are the woman at the well, whether you're a man or a woman, you are the woman at the well. And that's why your thirst is constantly running dry. Like you're constantly uh, unsatisfied, whether it's success, money, pleasure, whatever. I chased all three. I got all three. <laughs> and I was miserable and empty and thirsty, I, right? The well ran dry. And so I just invite you, BC Nation, wherever you're at, make that decision right now this week. Sit with God. Just like go to him and be like, God, are you pursuing me? Is it for real? If you are, show me you're pursuing me. I want to see. I'm a skeptic. I don't believe it. <laughs> Listen, ask him, invite him. Don't be a wuss. Don't just sit in the dark cave by yourself in isolation. It's not working. All right, Scott, um, welcome to my favorite part of the show. Uh, welcome to the confession round. Uh, we're going to ask you 10 quick fire questions. Uh, you'll have about three seconds to answer each. Don't overthink it. It's just for fun. Are you ready, sir? I'm ready. Okay. What's your favorite thing about God? His compassion. What is your least favorite thing about God? His wrath. <laughs> yeah, got it, right? This and that. Uh, what are you most afraid of? I'm most afraid of not bringing glory to him. Mm. Got it. I believe we're all struggling with something at any given moment of our life. It's just part of being human. What are you currently struggling with right now, either professionally or personally? Um, ironically, I'm struggling with trusting that God is good. I just lost my daughter um, in May. And so with all the suffering that I've had and having her gone through that, it's hard to believe that God is working that for my good. Yeah, I get that. Thank you for sharing that. What did you spend way too much time doing this past year? Social media. <laughs> I get that too. What secret fear do you have about people? Um, I, I think I'm afraid that I'm going to hurt them. Mm. That's honest. I think that's the first answer I got like that. Typically, it's I'm afraid people are going to hurt me. But that was a very honest and revealing uh, answer. Thank you for that. What do you wish you had learned sooner about God? Um, I wish I would have known that my sexual sin was not a barrier, but actually the point at which he wanted me to 
you know, most know his care and love for me. Yeah. Right. We got to get to our worst in order to really, truly feel loved by God. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, what's a new habit you want to create? Um, I'm trying to create a habit of connecting more um, relationally with my wife, not, not, not going to my wife to have sex so that I feel close to her, but creating closeness and then the sex emerges out of that. Well said. Uh, what's a bad habit you want to break? Um, yeah, I would say I probably am. I, I probably drink a little too much wine. I need to cut back on that. What's uh, pick three words to describe? I'm who being you are. really honest with you, bro. Bro, you're being super honest. Like you're catching me off guard. That's why I'm like, uh, 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 pick three words to describe who you are now. Um, I'm a sinner. I'm a saint, and um, I'm a beloved son of God. Sinner, Satan, saint, and son. That's it. And pick three words to describe who you were before you felt God's compassion and mercy and welcome back to his party. I was shameful. I was starving. And I was defeated. Yeah. And last question. If you could come back to life after you died, Scott, look your family and friends in the eye, give them only one piece of advice about life, eternity, all of it. What would you say to them? Um, if you confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead on the third day, you'll be saved. Praise God. Any final wisdom? What's the one thing you want my listener to know about bringing their shame and uh, self-condemnation to God? I think if you, if you will come to the place where you can adopt a posture of kindness to your own heart, that you realize that God is kind and how he wants you to approach your own heart is with kindness. It's going to do, it'll do in a month what a year of therapy won't do. Mm, well said. And Scott, where does Startup Nation, uh, sorry, that's my other show. Where does PC Nation uh, go ahead and find you and learn more about you or uh, one of you uh, listening right now? Um, are a future client of Scott and you want to engage with him? What are they yeah, so, so if anybody's struggling with unwanted sexual behavior and they want some help, they've you know, just kind of reached that point where they're feeling out of control. You can reach me at successfulmen.com, S-E-X-C-E-S-S-F-U-L, men.com. Um, and um, on my website, it tells you everything you need to know about me. And then uh, you can contact me or set up a a consulting meeting just to have an initial discussion with me and happy to talk to you about what you're dealing with and where, where we might go from there. Scott Cohn, thank you for being on Broken Catholic. I wish you God's love, peace, and joy in your life, sir. Thank you, Joseph. Have you tried absolutely everything and nothing has worked? Have you tried therapy? Have you tried coaching? Have you tried counseling, Christian counseling? Nothing's worked for you for your spouse. You just want better communication. When you wake up, do you feel like you want to crawl under a rock in the morning time? 
Is your brain so scattered and foggy at this point that you're not following through with things? You're not keeping your word in the matter. You're letting people down, maybe your own spouse or kids. Do you have way too much on your plate and you're getting more and more frustrated, which is turning into anger? Are you battling addictions right now? Are you an amped up or frantic person with a lot of anxiety and you're off and on a bipolar and depression medicines? If any of these you connect with, then what I do is specifically this. I do not do therapy. I do not do counseling. Those are for people that want to talk about their problems or learn different ways to cope and manage their problems. I don't do that. Reach out to me if you want to get rid of your problems permanently. Like be done with the addiction. Be done with the medications. Be done with the escaping your life because you just feel so powerless in it. If you want those results and you want peace, it's what we all want. We're all chasing it. We had it as kids. We lost it. Life beat the crap out of us. If you want peace, that's what I sell. It's God's peace. So you can find that at josephwarren.net. You can schedule a call with me, complimentary. I'll contribute 30 minutes of my time into your life. We'll get clear on what you actually want. Then we'll see if we're, we want to work together. And that's me interviewing you to see if you're ready. Are you ready to do what it takes? Some people try to come to me, but they're not ready to be coachable. They're not ready to get rid of the problems. Again, if you don't want to talk about your problems anymore and you've tried everything and nothing has worked and you want to permanently get rid of them, go to josephwarren.net and let's see if I'm your guy.